You know, some of the most comforting words that Jesus said are found in the Gospel of John. And he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Why is it, though, that our hearts don't always feel at peace? Why are our hearts so often just the opposite? Why are they like what he says not to do here? Why are they so often troubled? Why are our hearts so often fearful? See, we're at, we're at peace one moment, and then we're anxious the next. And, and we want to believe that Jesus gives us his peace. We want to believe that Jesus is our peace, and yet, so often, this is not our experience. This being the case for us, it's all too easy then for us to begin to wonder, you know, where's the problem here? Where's the problem Sometimes we think it's with God. He's, he's not doing his part. He's not doing what he said. I asked him for peace. He didn't give it. Sometimes we think, I don't feel this peace. Therefore, must be there's something I'm not doing. Something I'm doing that I need to stop doing. What's short-circuiting the, the perfect peace that Jesus says that he gives? Our present, our present times are definitely busy. They're troubling at times. They're chaotic. And while it might be tempting to think it, our our times are certainly not more difficult than any other generation of God's people. Honestly, we have it quite easy compared to previous generations. All Christians of every generation, though, have wrestled with the same question amidst their difficulties. You know, so it's, it's not a competition. Whose time is worse? Whose time is less peaceful? We all face this. Our hearts are as prone as other generations to be troubled and to be fearful. And when someone feels this way, whatever the circumstances, they all have the same question. How can I experience God's peace? Well, I've got, I've got good news for you. God's peace is real. And He genuinely offers it to you who are His people. Turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 4. This is just one sermon off this passage that I've been waiting, actually, to preach for one time. And I'm inserting it here because um, in two weeks, I will, Lord willing, be starting Ecclesiastes. Everyone will be like, yeah, sure, I'll believe it when you actually start it. But uh, that's the plan. But, but um, I wanted to have the opportunity to preach this passage that's been on my mind for a while. And And while you're turning to Philippians chapter 4, I want to remind you of two fundamental truths of Christianity. First, God never lies. It's not just that he could lie, but he doesn't. Hebrews 6.18 says it is impossible for God to lie. The second truth is very similar, very related. Since God never lies, his word, the Bible, is true. Psalm 119, 160. It says, the sum of your word is truth. Add it all up. It points to truth. It is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. 
There's many more verses that would reinforce just these two truths that I've brought forward here about Christianity. But I'm bringing this forward because if you question these two realities about God, I'm fairly certain that peace is just one of several of God's promised blessings that you're not experiencing. I say this to to emphasize here as we go into this passage the importance of faith and how important faith is to God. Faith in Him. Faith in His words that He gives to us in the Scripture. He wrote these words to you to believe, to be a comfort and a strength and a guidance to you. You know, we all struggle with doubt at times. We all struggle with wondering if we can trust God to do what He says He'll do here in His Word. And folks, I'm right there with you in this. I am not above doubt, not by any stretch of the imagination. But it is not God who needs to prove His faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. See, integrity, truth, faithfulness to those words, those those are so much a part of who God is that to not be that way, it's, it's like saying He cannot be God then. That's how basic this is to how God has revealed Himself. He is true. He speaks true. And if He doesn't speak truth and isn't true and isn't faithful to His words, walk away. But he can't do that because he would be denying who he is. It's our responsibility, therefore, not to challenge God, not to test God, but to trust God. Now, biblical faith, let me talk about this briefly. Biblical faith is not a blind trust in the face of conflicting evidence. Oh, this doesn't seem right, but, well, God has said it, so so I'm just going to trust it. Just going to trust it. That it's going to happen the way I want it to happen. Biblical faith is not an unknowable leap in the dark. On the contrary, biblical faith is a confident trust in the eternal God who is all-powerful, infinitely wise, eternally trustworthy, and who has revealed himself in the word and in the person of Jesus Christ, whose promises have proven true from generation to generation, The proof that He gives to man, well, it's right here in His Word. It's in the form of fulfilled prophecies. It's in the form of eyewitness testimony. Do you know that there really was a pool of Siloam? Do you know that there really was a crippled man who sat by the pool of Siloam? Jesus really approached this crippled man and said, Get up, take up your pallet and walk, just like we read. Why do we know that's true? Because people were there who witnessed it. They wrote it down. It happened. If it didn't happen, someone would say, that never happened. And that's true of everything in the Gospels. See, when you're believing what is in the Gospels, you're believing the testimony of those who were there. And if it wasn't true, somebody would have called it out in the first century. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead and he was still in the tomb, Christianity, we wouldn't be practicing Christianity. It would have been over in the first century. See, your trust is not blind. 
It's built upon a solid foundation of truth. And this truth can be verified. And knowing this is what leads you to believe them, what the Lord says, when He says, I will never desert you, not ever will I forsake you. See, I believe that because everything else He says is true. So I will believe this too. The Bible makes it clear that such faith, this type of faith, trusting God in this way, He says, that's more precious than gold. Faith that trusts God, takes Him at His word, is more precious than gold. And that we understand that why then that without faith it's impossible to please Him. For this is what God expects. He expects those who come to Him believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. Tell me, would you be pleased with someone, maybe one of your children or something, whose regular disposition towards you is that of skeptical of your sincerity, questioning your wisdom, suspicious of your motives, doubtful of your willingness. Would you like that? I wouldn't. How much more so God, who has only and always been faithful to keep His Word. See, we can take our doubts to God, though. This isn't where you feel ashamed for doubting. That's not the point of what I'm saying. I'm, under, I'm, I'm showing the importance of faith. But here's the beautiful thing. We can take our doubts to God. He's mindful of the littleness of our faith. We can come to Him like the, the man who, who was desperate for Jesus to cast out the demon from His Son, but He still wasn't sure if He could. He wanted it, but I don't know if you can. And Jesus replied to it. He said, what do you mean, if I can? See, he wanted to express his faith, but at the same time, he said, I believe. But at the same time, he's being genuine. Help my unbelief. And so in our desperate moments, we can ask God for what we need. And so when you're doubting, you can ask him for more faith. When, when you're wavering in your resolve to follow him, you can ask him for more resolve. When you're unwilling to obey, you can say, Lord, make me willing. And when you're anxious, you can ask Him to help you trust Him. And that brings us in now to our text in Philippians chapter 4. Let's read this together, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Is such peace here truly possible? Can this peace that he's talking about here be yours? And the answer to both of these questions is yes. Why? Because the God who never lies says so in his word, which is always true. The title of my sermon this morning is experiencing God's peace. And by following these three simple steps, you can experience God's peace in your life. I'm pausing here for a fact. Because sadly, that is what many in church have come to expect in their Christian lives. Simple, practical steps to a blessing-filled, pain-free Christian life. But God's peace is not something 
that you can buy from a vending machine. It is not cheap. God's peace is not convenient. It's not a transaction where you pray a prayer or you quote a verse and God gives you peace. Now, don't get me wrong. God freely offers this peace to us. It is nothing that must be earned. But at the same time, it involves a great deal of knowledge, time, effort. What do I mean when I say those three? Knowledge, time, effort. Let me try to illustrate it this way. If I were to tell you that if you can follow a recipe, you can be a great chef. If I were to say that, I would be revealing something about myself. I would be revealing my great lack of understanding of what it takes to be a great chef. I enjoy cooking. I really don't have many hobbies. I've come to realize that if I have a hobby, it's probably cooking. I enjoy cooking. I enjoy beating people in competitions about... (laughs) Just kidding. That's an inside joke. Sorry. Um, I enjoy cooking. I like making things. They've turned out fairly well. But you know what all I've done to get there, to that end goal? I've followed a recipe. That's all I've done. And then there's my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law is a chef. When he comes to our house, he usually doesn't, he doesn't have to bring anything. You know what he does? He opens up my fridge. And he looks. He walks in the pantry. He looks around. He puts a bunch of stuff on our counter. And before I know it, he's created a meal from just what we had in our fridge and our pantry, the type of meal that causes your eyes to roll back in your head. So good. I'm not exaggerating. And so what do we do? What do Rosita and I do? His name is Lon. Lon, can you write that down? Can you put that into a recipe so we can make it? Because it was that good. Forget about it. It doesn't happen that way. Now, what's the difference between my cooking and my brother-in-law's cooking? The difference is my brother-in-law has a relationship with food that I do not have. He has forged this relationship over years. He's gained a knowledge of foods and their flavors and, and how they combine and mix together and all that to create new flavors. And he's put in way more effort, he's put in way more time than I have to gain that knowledge and build the understanding of that relationship with food. And the result is as clear as the day is long. Now, could I do the same thing? Could I develop a relationship with food like he has? Yeah, I could. But it's not going to come with the little effort that it takes just to follow a recipe. See, God's peace is available for all of us to experience. It's available right now. Because God says so in His Word. He gives it. But see, your experience of peace is for the most part, it's a product of your relationship with God. A relationship that grows, deepens, matures as you do what? As you put in effort over time to know Him and to choose to trust Him through all the varying seasons of life that He brings your way to help you do what? Grow and practice your faith. Trust Him. 
He's exercising these muscles for you. Now, there's going to be times, certainly along the way, where He just graces you, blesses you with a peace in a tough situation. He certainly can do that amidst any difficulties. But here's, here's my point today, for the most part. Here's my point of the way it's going to be. Your experience of the peace of God is a fruit of your relationship with the God of peace. Your experience with the uh, uh, your experience of the peace of God is a fruit of your relationship with the God of peace. And I think that's what Philippians 4 shows us. So before we go any further, let's just ask God to speak to us through his word. Let's, let's go to him. Father, we come to you with a need. We want to understand how to experience your peace because we know you promise it, but yet we so often experience it. So would you instruct us and teach us from your word, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, still, by way of introduction, we need to make sure that we all understand what kind of peace we're talking about here. Peace, as the world defines it, is going to be the absence of conflict between two people, between two nations, right? Um, I think peace is also the absence of inner conflict and the ability, let's say, just to fall asleep at night without a care in the world. That's the world's understanding of peace. And I would say the definition of peace here is similar to the biblical definition. It's, it's in, but though it's important to make the distinction. <coughs> peace, it often appears in our Bibles as the as the translated Hebrew word, which you probably know, shalom. Shalom. It means completeness, soundness, welfare. The peace in the Bible is not found in us, though, unless Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is found in us. He's the embodiment. He's the agent. He's the only source of lasting peace. There's no true peace found apart from Christ. And this has been true... Ever since the garden, when God was finished creating the physical universe, creating the world, he breathed life into the animals, into Adam and into Eve, and he saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. See, at that moment, there was nothing but peace. Adam and Eve were in a perfectly harmonious relationship with God, with each other, with all of creation. There were no arguments. There were no... There was no awkwardness. There was no grief. There was no inner turmoil. There was no despair. Why? Because there was no sin. God walked with them in the garden. And they knew Him as they themselves were fully known by Him. And then the lies of Satan, the sin of man, it burst this bubble of perfection. And their intimate fellowship with the Father each other with the world around them it was just it was just swept away right peace it was shattered like a mirror and in its place came sadness remorse longing took root in the in 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 all mankind see this gives us some perspective on just how needful the promise was of Isaiah 9:6 we just got done celebrating christmas this is a christmas verse child will be born to us. And what will his name be? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. See, the peace 
of Prince Jesus, it restores what was broken in the Garden of Eden. He came to reconcile God to man. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what do we now have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in this sense of the word, peace really isn't a feeling. It's, it's the restoration, it's the healing of our relationship and our fellowship with God made possible how? By the death of Jesus Christ in our place. He took away the offense, our sin. I think, though, and I think this is important, is that our peace with God, it has a direct impact on our emotions. Paul tells us, so objective peace established by God influences our subjective, our experience of peace. Paul tells us this in Romans 8, 6. He says, for the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. See, when we consider the wonder of the gospel, when we set our minds on the same things that the Spirit of God loves, what happens? Our affections for God. They're being stirred. They're being stoked. Which also leads us to experience things like delight and joy at what Christ has done for us through the cross. He's given us life and He's established peace. This should fill us all with delight. So with that understanding, let's look now at Philippians 4 in a little bit more detail. I want, I want to point out an observation that, that helps us kind of organize what he's saying here in verses 4. Actually, all, down, all the way down to verse 9, which I didn't read, verses 8 and 9. So here at the end of this letter, Paul, he's, he's giving us kind of a, in a, kind of a rapid-fire manner, a number of commands about how to live. And these commands he gives here through verses 4 through 9 are in two different sets. Uh, The first set is verses 4 through 7. The second set is verses 8 through 9. And and notice that both sets, though, this is kind of the key part here, is that both end end with almost the same hope for what? Peace. And the peace of God or, or verse 7, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. Verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. And so the focus of these two sets of commands is the same. Peace. Now, I'm only going to focus on verses 4 through 7, but as you can see, both of these have peace in view. And these verses, they reflect the godly person's response to the grace that they've received in Christ. The first set of commands, it speaks of our devotion to God. A longing to be in God's presence where we can do what? Where we can pour out our heart to God in joy, in prayer, with thanksgiving. And then the second, where he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, let your mind dwell on these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen, practice these things. And he says, And the God of peace will be with you. That, that set focuses on on how we're to live in God's presence. All of this is a response to grace. And so together, these two sets of verses, they describe the relationship of the believer with God. It's it's characterized by a longing for and a living in the presence of God. And the fruit, the 
fruit of such a relationship with the God of peace is to experience the peace of God. Now, there's three main exhortations that are in our section here, verses 4 through 7. Those three main are very clear. You, You can see them right there. The main ones are rejoice in the Lord, pray, and be thankful. He also inserts one about forbearing, and I think that has more to do really with the context of Philippians. And I'll, I'll walk through it very briefly, though. But it's really focused on prayer, or rejoicing, praying, and being thankful. And what's interesting is that these are the same three basic exhortations that we find all over the place in the Psalms. For example... The righteous man will be glad in the Lord, Psalm 964, Psalm 97. And they'll be, they'll be glad in the Lord as they come before His presence with thanksgiving. That's Psalm 95 and Psalm 100. And why are they coming before the Lord with such gladness? In order to pray in His sanctuary. That's Psalm 61 and Psalm 84. So what he's bringing out here, what Paul is emphasizing here, is something that he, as a Jew who loves the Psalms, says this is all over the place. And so I'm just exhorting you in these same things. This is what the godly man does. He longs to be in the presence of God because that's the place where he can rejoice, where he can lift his concerns to God and he can be grateful for all that God is and all that He has done. You know, Paul even opened his letter. If you were to jump back to chapter 1, you can look there. He opens his letter with these same three things. He says, I thank my God, in verse 3 of chapter 1, I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So so Paul is steeped in this as a good Jew. This is what it means to be in the presence of God, and it just flows out of him. These desires reflect the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That's why it's all over the Psalms. And so from these verses, we see that the experience of peace is a fruit of where you really long to be. Do you long to be in the presence of God? See, those who genuinely long for God's presence, you know what they're going to experience? The blessing of peace. Because He's the God of peace. Now, in verses 4 through 7, He lays out four clear imperatives for us. And um, we're going to walk through these. Pray, or rejoice in the Lord always is the first one. The second is forbear with all men. And the third and fourth is pray with thanksgiving over all concerns. But if you treat these, warning, warning, if you treat these as three steps to experiencing God's peace, I'm telling you right now, you're going to be sorely disappointed. These imperatives, they all reflect relationship. They all reflect a longing to be with God, rejoicing, praying, thanksgiving, All of these things are what results in experiencing the peace of God. Okay, so the first characteristic of a genuine longing for God's presence is joy. And so Paul exhorts us here. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, verse 4. That's the point here. That's the the imperative. That's the command here. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he repeats himself. Again, I will say rejoice. So that's our first application. Rejoice in the Lord always. Why can you rejoice always? Because there's nothing that can separate you from Him. So rejoice always. There's nothing that can separate. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is to be separated from God forever. Some of you are separated from God right now. 
you were in the worst possible situation you could ever be in. Because if you were to die, you would be separated from him forever. But see, the believer has been united to him by faith. And so we can rejoice because there's nothing that can separate you from him. The worst thing that could happen to you is not death, dismemberment, uh, ridicule, shame, being crucified. Those are not the worst things that could happen to you. They're painful. I don't volunteer. The worst thing that could happen to me is to be separated from God. That will never happen, so I can rejoice always. Joy is the distinctive mark of the believer in Jesus Christ. And in his letter, Paul speaks as much about joy as he does about grace. Grace abounds towards us in Christ, and therefore joy should also abound for us in Christ. It's not a joy that comes and goes with your circumstances. It's anchored in your relationship with the Lord. See, nothing in your life, nothing in your death, nothing can separate you from Christ. Nothing can undo, alter, diminish what Christ has done for you. And this is why you can always rejoice. Such joy, is it's like an underground spring that just keeps flowing. It never dries up. It just continues to produce water no matter what the season. And this joy, it finds its expression. See, it's an internal joy that finds its expression outwardly in rejoicing. Notice the focus of the rejoicing. It's in the Lord, which explains why such joy is to be the mark of us individually, me, you, but also corporately, all of us as a church, as a church body. We who are in the Lord should always rejoice in the Lord. Now, you may be in the midst of difficult circumstances, even right now. You may be lonely. You may be in pain. You may be facing suffering of various kinds. In the case of the Philippians, they were facing opposition. They were facing suffering at the hands of Rome and the citizens of Rome who, uh, because Caesar was to be honored as Lord, not Jesus. So they were under that kind of persecution. Even so, Paul tells them, he tells each of us, rejoice in the Lord always, always. And Paul's understanding of, of life for those who walk in step with God's Spirit. Joy and peace, they, they, they go together. They reside in the top three of the fruit of the, that the Spirit produces in our lives. It's right behind the first one, love. Right, The fruit of the Spirit is love, and then the next two, joy, peace. They're always together. When Paul describes the kingdom of God, he says, it had, you know, here's what the kingdom of God has nothing to do with. Nothing to do with all those laws and ordinances about how to eat and how to wash your hands and how to drink and, and all that kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with it. He says, he says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. God's kingdom, though, has everything to do with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In the case here in Philippians, Paul commands us to rejoice. And he says, and peace is the promised result. You rejoice always, peace will be coming your way. So do you lack peace in your life? If you do, if you lack peace, I would be willing to bet you also lack joy. Instead of rejoicing always, you probably complain always, or at least a lot. Instead of your relationship with God being characterized by joy, it's characterized by pessimism. And gloom. Don't you see that 
you have every reason for joy in the Lord? Don't you see this? Your sins against God are incalculable. There is no summing them up. It's an infinite debt you owe God. You deserve to be condemned, cast out of the Lord's presence forever, cast into eternal torment in the lake of fire. But you have been spared. You have been pardoned. You have been forgiven. And you have been accepted and loved and blessed with eternal life. Why? Because God Himself became a man in Jesus Christ so that He could suffer and He could die in your place. If you depart life, never... Okay, you, need to, you need to understand the importance of what I'm about to say. If you depart this life having never received one good thing that this world has to offer, but you have Christ, you have everything. You have everything. Take this world. Give me Jesus. You have everything because you are blessed forever and infinitely beyond what you deserve. This world will one day be in the rearview mirror, completely a tiny dot, far behind, but you will have Christ. And whatever you didn't have in this life, you have Christ forever. You will forget it because the weight of glory will be so great. You'll look back and go, why was I so stressed? Why was I so at such unrest? Why was I so troubled? Your refrain ought to be, I I may not have what I want. I may not have what others still have, but I still have Christ. And praise God for His grace towards me in Jesus. That ought to be all our refrain. And you need to see that rejoicing in the Lord always, it's a command, but it's a command given out of love and for your good. It keeps you focused on what matters most, on Christ. It tells you where your longings truly need to be focused. On Christ. And where you'll find true satisfaction. In Christ. And this world, in all its fullness, it's not going to satisfy the utmost longings of your soul. But if you have Christ, and nothing else, you have everything. If you're not rejoicing in the Lord always, you need to repent. Your lack of joy is revealing that you lack a genuine fellowship with God you have yet to truly taste and see just how good He is. You're you're thinking that you're going to find satisfaction from things that can't satisfy. And that is why you lack peace. You lack peace because you lack a relationship with God who is the cause of joy and the source of peace. But for those who know Him, those who know the joy of His presence and know nothing can ever separate them from Him, They're happy to obey Paul's command here and to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, the next characteristic of genuine longing for God's presence is gentleness. And like I was saying, I think this is kind of an extra. I think it's inserted here primarily for the Philippians and what they're facing, but we'll just walk through it quickly. The second admonition here is that we are to forbear with all men. And Paul squeezes this command in here um, because they're facing persecution. And so he says to them, In verse 5, he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The ESV uses the word reasonableness. Let it be known to all. The NIV says, let everyone see your gentleness. 
And so amid the present adversity, the Lord, to whom they belong, to whom they can never be separated from, has graciously set them free to do what? To have joy always. Even when you're facing persecution. And along with being known for joy, they're also to be known for their gentle forbearance. And it's a forbearance towards one another, and it's toward all, including those who are currently making life miserable for them. Can you apply this towards someone in your life? It will lead to peace. Why should you forbear with those who mistreat and hate you? Because it displays the forbearance of Christ. I think this is Paul's way of echoing what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. He says about Christ, And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So you can only forbear outwardly with all men if you've spent much time inwardly rejoicing in God's presence. Now, verse 6 is where Paul brings in the other two characteristics of this genuine longing for God's presence, prayer and thanksgiving. And we're all so familiar with this verse because we've quoted it countless times. We've shared it countless times with others when they were anxious about things. But let's read it together. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so here's what we are to do thirdly. We are to pray with thanksgiving over all concerns. Pray with thanksgiving over all concerns. Now, before I speak about what Paul is saying here, I want to speak about prayer in general. Okay, we're going to boil it down. Prayer is talking with God. Anyone can talk to God. Right? Wrong. Being able to come into God's presence, that's what prayer is. Being able to come into God, and it's in the context of what we're talking about here. Taking your needs to Him. Letting your requests be made known to Him. That type of prayer is what we're talking about. That type of talking to God. Can anybody do that? From a foxhole? Because there's no atheists in foxholes when the bombs are landing all around you. Oh, God, help me. Can anyone do this? No, they can't. Being able to come into the presence of God is a privilege bought for you, bought for me by the blood of Christ. You and I now have access to God that should absolutely blow our minds. We have been justified before God when we were guilty. Christ has forever removed this great offense of our sin. We were rebels against the sovereign King of all creation. We were deserving of eternal death, but now what are we? We're sons of God. We're sitting around His table. You know, there's this picture of JFK outside of the Oval Office. And the picture includes a number of members of his cabinet and other dignitaries, and they're all kind of standing around there, and they they all kind of have a makeshift smile on their face. The reason why, because, you know, these men are all important. And they only have so much access to the president. But this picture shows them looking down as the most powerful man in the Western world is bending down to do what? Play with his son. And the others, these important men, maybe dignitaries, ambassadors, cabinet members, they can't do anything about it. They just stand there and kind of (laughs) look down and smile. 
as the man that they're trying to talk to plays with his son. That's you and me with God. That's the relationship we have. That access to God isn't just so that you can go, hey, hey God, I need something. God, uh, I got these requests. Can I make them known to you? This access to God means intimate relationship. The kind of intimate relationship that God desires to have with you is now possible because the barrier, the offense of our sin has been removed by Christ and now He can be with you. Before, He couldn't have anything to do with you in your sin. It was abhorrent to Him. But that's been removed by Christ. The Spirit has replaced the heart of stone that was in us, that hated God, that opposed God, that said, I'm cool with you, right, God, but didn't do anything about your sin. What has He replaced it with? A heart of flesh that has God's laws written on His heart. They're no longer burdensome. They're not loathsome to you anymore. They're lovely. They're good. You can come into God's presence boldly now at any time and for any reason. And the blessing of such intimate knowledge and access to God and, and learning that you can trust Him to care for your every concern, right? That's the access you have to God so that you can be with Him and be amongst Him and learn from Him and grow and trust in Him. Why? So that you can know peace. You can experience peace in a chaotic world. It's that possible. And understanding this relational aspect of peace in connection with prayer is absolutely vital. Your experience of the peace of God is a fruit of your relationship with the God of peace. If you don't see it this way, you know what you're going to be? Frustrated. You're going to be frustrated with God. You're going to be tempted to accuse Him of all kinds of wrong. I asked for peace, but uh, I guess He doesn't hear me. He must not love me. He must not care about me. And on and on it goes. Here's what God says to us through Isaiah about God. You keep Him, that's us, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, God. Why? Because He trusts in you. You see the peace and the trust in God? You don't get this trust just because you're a Christian. It takes knowledge, time, effort by becoming a chef. You've got to invest. You've got to go to be with Him because you have access to Him now. He protects you with His peace because you know Him, because you trust Him. And to not invest in or genuinely desire a relationship with God, but yet expect some experience of peace in the midst of your troubles and concerns, what is that doing? That's treating God like a glorified vending machine. Need my peace now, God. Here's my prayer. Here's my quoted verse. Bring the peace. I don't know if this works, but I just thought of that scene in The Godfather um, when um, when he comes in. Godfather, I need a request. I need I need you to do something for me. You come to me. You come on my wedding day. You don't come and visit me. You don't do all this stuff. You know, like he's saying, you don't have a relationship with me, but you need something now. Oh, may we never be that way with God, <laughs> not the Godfather. The God who is Father. Don't mean to offend with my illustration that was off the cuff. 
so you may not like that movie. Let's turn our attention now back to the text. I I want you to notice what Paul says right before at the end of verse 5. This is critical. Right at the end of verse 5, look what he says. The Lord is near. So in the midst of these commands that we're looking at here, Paul inserts this statement. The Lord is near. And he inserts it there because it's meant to give reason, motivation for why we should do what Paul is telling us to do. Now, these four words, the Lord is near, they could legitimately go either way, meaning they could they could reinforce what Paul says, give motivation to what Paul says right before about in the in verse five about forbearing with all men because the Lord is near. Or they could go with these verses, be anxious for nothing. And it's it legitimately could go either way. But it's Psalm 145 that persuades me to link the nearness of God to living without anxiety. Here's what he says, Psalm 145, 18. Remember, Paul loves the Psalms. So this is influencing him. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. So he's linking the nearness of God to prayer. And what sweet and comforting words those are to facing anxious circumstances. Paul here is echoing not only the psalmist, but also Jesus. It was Jesus who said, don't be worried about your life. And he goes on to say that worrying, it gains you nothing. What does Jesus tell us to do instead of worrying? Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Go to where God is. Be with God. Seek God. All these things you're worried about, he provides them for you. The Lord is near. Seek His presence. Trust God to know your needs and to care for you. You can be at peace in His care. Why? Because Jesus made it clear that there's no need of yours that God doesn't care about. How did He make this clear? He invites you to cast all your anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. And He said Himself, He said, aren't five sparrows sold for just two cents? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. These two little penny birds... God forgets none of them. He says, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't fear. You are way more valuable to God than these sparrows that are only worth two cents. Apprehension and fear. You know what they mark? They mark the life of the unbeliever, the untrusting, those for whom the present is all there is and for whom the present is also uncertain. And this shouldn't be the case for the Christian. Not when you have God telling you that He's near to you such that you can in everything let your requests be made known to Him. In everything, He says. Meaning in all the details, all the circumstances of your life. In the situations where others are going to wring their hands with worry, those who trust the Lord, they can run to God. They can run to Him in prayer because He's right there and they can make all their requests known to Him. How it pleases the Lord when we trust Him completely, when we depend upon Him utterly. It's, it's so easy to forget this. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. In Him we live and move and exist. And when we forget this, what do we become? Ungrateful. We become ungrateful. Perhaps this is why Paul adds then to let our request be made known to God with thanksgiving. Paul could not imagine living as a Christian without constantly pouring out his heart in gratitude to God. And as he shows us at the beginning of Romans, he says, you know what, in gratitude, 
It's just a step away from running away from God to idolatry. He says, for even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. And he's talking about those who became idolatrous. They abandoned God. Why? Because they weren't thanking him. They had no, they had no attitude of gratitude towards him. The attitude of the humble is one of thanksgiving. See, a heart of gratitude towards God is your way of acknowledging that He's God, you're the creature. He's everything, and you're dependent on Him. Thanksgiving is verbalizing to God that you are the undeserving, you're the needy, you're the dependent one. What is He? He's the gracious, the sufficient, and generous giver. Prayer with thanksgiving. It doesn't mean that you say, God, I need this, and thank you for giving it to me in advance. That's not what that means. Paul is describing what your basic posture is before God, as well as the proper context for coming to God with your requests. Whatever you choose to do, God, with this need that I have, or whatever you choose not to do, Father, I'm grateful because I know you hear me, I know you love me, you care for me, you know what is best for me. You know who that sounds like? That sounds like Jesus. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. I know you love me and care for me. I don't want to go through this, but I'll do it. I want your will for me. Now, what is the result when we are rejoicing in the Lord always, when we're forbearing with all men, praying with thanksgiving over all concerns? We are able to then lastly rest safely in God's peace. Now, this isn't something we do. We can do this. We get to do this. It's the blessing that we can enjoy now. This experience of peace, it's the fruit of the relationship that we've cultivated with God. Our longing to be in His presence. Peace, along with joy, is produced by God's Spirit as we seek Him, as we abide with Him, as we seek His will, as we yield ourselves to His ways. It's the peace of God from the God of peace. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that this peace, it surpasses all comprehension. It doesn't measure up. It, how are you at peace in this situation? Because you have God's peace in you from the God of peace. It's beyond our minds, which are so prone. Our minds are so prone to anxiety and unbelief. So it transcends our merely human way of thinking about this world. It, it's a peace that comes as we express our trust in God to take care of us, even though we don't have it all figured out. Can you see that the only way that you can have this kind of peace is in, a, in the context of a relationship where you know that you can take all of your concerns to your Heavenly Father who loves you, who cares for you, and who therefore you can trust implicitly? Such peace, Paul says, he says it's going to guard your hearts and your mind. There was a Roman garrison in Philippi. You know what its duty was? Guard the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. That was what the garrison in Philippi was to do. And he says, perhaps that's why he's using this word. Because that's what God's peace will do to you. It will keep your heart from falling into those anxious thoughts that lead to fear and distress and tempt you not to trust God. But see, this is God's peace and so it surpasses Merely what you and I can understand. And notice where this peace is located. In Christ Jesus. God's ultimate gift for those who are in Christ is peace and joy. 
So joy, prayer, thanksgiving, peace. These mark the person who longs for God's presence and seeks a genuine relationship with Him. And such a person is also marked by forbearance and no anxiety. So how could they not... um, How could they not know these things since the Lord is near to them? He's present in His Spirit. He's the one who prompts us to pray, prompts us to give thanks. He's the one who produces this fruit in us of joy and peace, which are the ultimate gifts that He gives to those who have built this relationship with Him through Christ and then leads us to trust Christ. So your experience, Christian, of the peace of God, it's a fruit of your relationship with the God of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to be patient with us and to instruct us, to cause us to see all these beautiful things in your word. And we see, I think, perhaps most of all, That if we lack peace, it's because we lack trust. And we need to work on our relationship with you that is possible now because of what Christ has done, removing the offense of our sin. Let us renew our diligence to be in your word, to read your words to us, to, to look at Jesus and know we're seeing God, to hear your promises, to hear your comfort, to read your wisdom and guidance. This all comes from you and reflects you. And as we do that, we can't help but rejoice. We realize you care for us and so we can bring our needs to you and we're grateful because we know you are wise and you're good. We want to enjoy this peace. But I think what we really need to enjoy more than anything is that we can be with you because you're near to us. Draw us to yourself. And let us know this peace that comes from you, the God of peace. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.